This time, we're taking a look at the multi-metaphorical blockbuster Aliens. And along the way, we ask, what makes James Cameron such a bastard? Would this movie be different without Michael Bean? And is the alien queen now a Disney princess? We're on an express elevator to podcast, going down. This is Force Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined by my friend and co-host... <laughs> the Disney princess, Shawn Michael Culp. Okay, we'll need a new name for you now. <laughs> Can't go by Sean and be a princess. Why not? I guess Sean Yun does it. So yeah, I think you can do it. <laughs> That's right, darn it. Wow. I, that was just so that that intro man just blew me away like I never thought of that. You're right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Di- Disney owns Fox now. I didn't. So that answers the question like, "Hey, when are we going to see the Alien movies on Disney Plus?" And is the Alien Queen now a Disney princess? <laughs> we need a prequel of the Alien Queen. See, these are the things I think about when, you know, I'm alone <laughs> and I have too much time on my hands. I think they could do that, though, right? They could make a kid's movie of the Alien Queen. Like, just make her have big eyes and, you know, little lighter edges. And no. <laughs> just have, have it from her perspective. It has to deal with the, the conflict. The <laughs> has to deal with the conflict. Like, well, the, the babies I make kill people, but I have to continue laying eggs. <laughs> That's a hard Pixar movie to get sold. No, but it, but it, hear me out. It's for you know she just cares about her children, and these and these humans just want to kill her because they don't understand the deeper constructs of her mind. So now we're getting into like Inside Out, Pocahontas territory. You, we're right there. We are there. You could spin that. I think it's possible, Chris. That's a very hard Pixar movie to get sold. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. So. Uh, Tell me about this Disney princess. <laughs> okay, so synopsis of Aliens. So, after spending 57 years in stasis, Ellen Ripley is awakened to an entirely different world. While dealing with her trauma from the Nostromo, she learns that the planet from her past is now home to colonizers. And when the company loses contact with those colonizers, Ripley, along with a group of aliens, are tasked with finding out what happened on LV-426. Nice. So we get a very, it's a nice continuation of the world that's established in the first movie. Yeah. It answers a lot of questions that were raised, and it forces Ripley to confront the trauma that's now shaping her life. And boy, does she. From early on, she oh, she has to face that trauma. I like, yeah, chest bursters, all of it. She has to go back into uh, basically her horrors, right? The thing that she just woke up to escape. The cause of all her nightmares and pain, that opening nightmare scene is truly oh. terrifying. Oh, and yeah. and you just see on her face the entire time, like, she is not comfortable being an LV-426. No. And what a name. I didn't, that's the name of the planet, finally. That's just the designation. <laughs> it's like when they find, like, an unidentified body out in space. They just give it, like, some yeah. generic type of, like, here's the quadrant it's located <laughs> in, and here's the person who discovered it. So you might get, like, you know, something that's named, oh, this is uh, 17, you know, Peterson or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very basic designation. Habitable planet number four. Yeah. <laughs> so for this film, James Cameron directs and wrote the story or the screenplay and story. He cranked out a 42 page treatment for this story in three days. That makes me why though, why James Cameron and like why in 1980s? Well, you have to look at what he did before this because in 1982, he does the Terminator and because of the layoff period, he also wrote Rambo first blood part two. Um, He did Piranha 2, even though that was like he was fired halfway through production. So, yeah, James Cameron, pretty up and coming director at this time. Everybody was blown away by Terminator and they thought like and Fox thought like, okay, what can he do with a bigger budget and like more control like of the script? So he writes this his producer girlfriend, Gail Ann Hurd, came along with him at the time they were boyfriend and girlfriend they got married uh during production so yeah they're they're a team they're knocking it out and then they would power couples yeah a very big power couple and then i think it's important to note too that gail ann heard was you know yeah we think of her as this great producer now 
but there was a lot of skepticism about her abilities at the time. There's a lot of there's a lot of great stories about her kind of staring down a room of Fox executives saying, like, well, what can you do, like you little girl? Like, what can you do with this movie? Wow. And then she lays down all her references. Like, call all these people, they'll tell you what I can do. <laughs> Which I will uh say we did talk about the Terminator. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> we have our, our Terminator suite of episodes. So if you'd like to learn about what we thought about that, check it out. Absolutely. <laughs> But that's cool. That's funny. We do see a little pattern with uh, James Cameron and his uh, wives. Yeah, a little bit. You can definitely compare his filmography to uh, the list of people he's married. (laughs) But kudos to him for bolstering, like, you know, bringing up, bolstering people's careers, you know? Yeah. By all accounts, he supported Galen and Heard unequivocally. And they've made so many movies together. And Biglow? Catherine, yeah. Yeah, she got big. I mean, shoot. Linda Hamilton? Yeah. (laughs) He's the man. Speaking of strong females, though, like front and center in this movie is Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley. She's back, even though it looked like she wouldn't return for a little while. Cameron's original script was centered on Ellen Ripley. The problem was uh, was Fox did not sign Sigourney Weaver. And then they read the script like, what do you mean Ripley's front and center? Like, and, well, we don't have her. And Cameron said, you have to get her back. She was actually paid, like, at the time, this was a huge sum of money. She was paid $1 million to come back and star in this movie. Oh, that's awesome. She got her money. She got her money because she saw how badly they wanted her, and she was and she liked the script. She wanted to do the movie, but Fox kind of bungled bringing her back early on. Which is crazy because, I mean, a recast wouldn't, I don't know, if they recast the film, I don't think it would have made it, you know, as big of a hit as it is now. Sigourney Weaver is Ellen Ripley. You can't get around that. If it, if it was possible to bring back Sigourney Weaver, then by God, you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And they did. Who else, though? They got Bill Paxson in this, a young Bill Paxson. Bill Paxson, yeah, like, who started his career yeah. as a set builder working alongside James Cameron and just appeared in a lot of movies as like a favor. He and Cameron were pretty tight buddies. And then this was, I think, like his big... Kind of like coming out party. Like, you, we, yeah, he's good set builder, but then we see, like, yeah, he's got some acting comedic chops here. We got, Bi- yeah, Bill Paxson as Hudson, uh, Michael Bean as Dwayne Hicks, uh, Paul Reiser as Carter Burke, uh, Lance Henriksen as the Android Bishop, a mm-hmm. uh, little girl, Newt, played by Carrie Henn, who this is her only acting role, actually. Really? They, sh- they filmed this movie. In England, so they decided to go around to the American air bases and just cast a, an American child living there. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it worked out. That's it, like, I wonder, because, you know, just like having the guy found in the bar that played the alien creature in the first one. That's cool. They found one of the stars just on a base. We get also get uh, Jeanette Goldstein as Vasquez, and we'll get into how problematic that casting was in a little bit. And we've also got William Hope as Lieutenant Gorman. So much bigger cast than the first film, but great cast too. I love this cast. I don't see them, you know, too much you know, outside of this film that often. But man, I love their their alchemy together. Definitely. Tell me, what about the controversial casting? So, if you haven't figured it out already, Jeanette Goldstein is a white woman <laughs> playing a Hispanic female soldier. Yeah. She spent hours in makeup browning her skin. She wore brown contact lenses. They removed her freckles, dyed her hair. Jeanette Goldstein is white, playing an Hispanic character. I don't know how they managed to get away with this, even in the early 80s, and I don't know how this film has avoided like this controversy in retrospect. But Jeanette Goldstein's white. (laughs) Does it bother you? I I didn't know she was me either. I didn't know she was white until <laughs> later on when I saw her in other movies. Like, wait a minute, yep. and then I pieced it together. <laughs> you did some research, and I figured out like, wait a minute, like you brown were brown eyes, different. like you're brown in this movie, and yet you're white as a foot of snow in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Something must be afoot. Oh, kudos to their makeup job. Yeah. Yeah, uh, a little problematic when you're viewing it through today's lenses, but I would say so. Yes, I'll agree with you there. It's kind of like viewing old westerns back in the 50s where you're like, wait, 
Wait a minute. Well, I think it still would have been controversial if this movie were made today, but I think it's more so that this character, Vasquez, is really kind of front and center mm-hmm. in the film's second and third act. Oh, yeah. She's one of the main. She's a very she's a very popular character in this movie and has a great dynamic amongst this squad of soldiers, but I think this is something that like you have to ask when watching this movie now. Like, How comfortable are you watching a white woman play a Hispanic woman? And it sounds like she's, you know, basically trying out for you know a gang or something with her dialogue. <laughs> There's a lot of pendejo throwing out there, <laughs> a lot of hombres and essays and things like that. Like it just seems like a very, <laughs> like a very stereotypical caricature of a Hispanic character at this time. I I would say yes. Through today's lens, it is kind of racist. Her character is a little bit stereotypical. Definitely. Like, did they say uh, they make like comments about like illegal, like aliens yeah, yeah. and stuff? Yeah, like, yeah. Oh he, Bill gosh. Paxton goes, someone said alien. She thought they heard said illegal alien, which is nuts because this film like takes place in like hundreds of years from now. Yeah, so it's like, uh, well, hey, product of the time, right? Yeah, that's a one little slice. <laughs> I would say so. It's very much a product of the time, but still problematic through today's lens. I, um, I will agree with you there, sir. So, I mean, after the massive success that the first movie was, there was interest in making a sequel. And we talked about this in our last episode, that Fox, through some creative accounting, tried to say that the first movie lost money and therefore they couldn't go with a sequel. Yeah. Just kind of crappy on their part. Yeah. But it took time. I mean, I think, though, the time, you know, taken is in its benefit because who knows if James Cameron would have even directed it, you know? So the movie that we would have gotten would have been totally different. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, if you know, you've got a hit on your hands and you want to try and milk that for what it's worth, they should have tried to move faster with making a sequel as opposed to waiting seven years. This is one of those films too. We talk about this a lot where the production of it itself is almost as legendary as the movie itself. There's a lot of history. There's so much. Like, even the casting. Like, Michael Bean was not originally set to play Hicks. There was an actor by the name of James Remar who was set to play Hicks. Mm. But during production, he was arrested for drug possession. <laughs> oh, no. And they just fired him and recast him because of Bean's familiarity with James Cameron playing Kyle Reese in the Terminator film. Yeah. They called him up, and two days later, he was in London... And just in in costume and character on this set. Okay, I thought right because he was in Terminator. Yeah, yeah, I knew he looked familiar. I was like, that guy looks really familiar. And so I was like, oh, is he the you know like certain directors have certain guys that they always cast? Yeah, Michael Bean I think has been in something like three or four of Cameron's movies. So he's the guy. He's the guy. He loves working with Cameron. A lot of people don't though. <laughs> <laughs> As we've talked about on other films yeah. that we reviewed with Cameron. And the cast, I mean, overall, yeah. I mean they they also they had an opportunity to customize their armor, so that's why it seems unique to the characters. Uh, and also they had an opportunity to train with SAS soldiers for 3 weeks, which definitely Let's a sense of credibility. Like you never once doubt that this group is, you know, a finely tuned military unit. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they handle their weapons properly. They they take off their helmets when when they should. Although if you're in a combat situation, you never take off your helmet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they did seem pretty polished, which is nice. Yeah, because so many movies you just see guys that have no idea what they're doing. Right. It's like, oh come on, just watch a YouTube video, Jesus. So I, I like that about that. And they were even encouraged to read Starship Troopers. Which is cool. <laughs> so we get a lot of crossover episodes today. We encourage you to go back oh, and listen yeah. to Terminator. And now go listen to our episode on Starship Troopers. <laughs> hey, come on back. Oh, God. Also, big budget for the time. This yes. got a budget of $18.5 million, which may not seem like a lot. But in today's money, that translates to about $42.5 million. So still decent amount of movie. And for what you see in this final product, like, yes, like that budget was stretched to like the absolute limit. Yeah. Like every dollar that they possibly could spend is there on screen and it's worth it. Mm hmm. They took advantage with all the sets, all the puppets. It looks great, though, for its meager budget. Right. Aged very well. Very well. And filming was fraught with controversies because Cameron, by his own admission, is a 
perfectionist. Some people may call him a bastard. It's entirely, you know, whichever one you want to choose. So it was shot at Pinewood Studios in Britain with a British crew. And since Cameron was unfamiliar with, like, their practices, he would work and work and work. And then all of a sudden the crew would just stop and take what they call those tea time breaks. They, I, don't, I don't know how long they were, but they would just be in the middle of setting up a shop and a sh- uh, excuse me, setting up a shot. And they would just take a break. He's like, guys, get back to work. <laughs> what are you doing? This is not what's supposed to be. It's like it's tea time, mate. It was a couple hours a week they would lose, right? Yeah. Because they're like, <laughs> you American, we need our tea. Well, it all adds up. It's a half hour a day. And by the end, of, if you're shooting six days a week, that's three hours of um, of shooting that you've lost. I just say that speaks volumes to the Brits and how they care about that mental health. Well, this pissed off Cameron so much. <laughs> I'm sure it did. That the, well, and also, too, this crew was not familiar with Cameron. So the cinematographer would basically go against whatever Cameron wanted, and so would the first assistant director. And this pissed him off so much that he fired both of them. Wow. He fired the cinematographer first, replaced <laughs> him with a different one, and then it was the first assistant director, a guy by the name of uh, 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 Derek Cracknall, that this firing actually caused the crew to just walk off. Oh, my god! And they refused to return to work. Well, I know he didn't work with the union crews a lot. No. If it was something. Yeah, they wanted that Well, extra. he wanted to move production. He wanted to bring in an entirely different crew after this happened. But Fox and Gail and her told him, you need to fix this because we can't come in over schedule. We have to come in under budget. And he sat the crew down, brought them back, and basically apologized. And I'm sure what was sort of like a half apology, yeah. probably sort of like an apology without admitting fault kind of thing. I could definitely see that with James Cameron because he's not that. He doesn't seem like the uh, type. Well, this, well, the apology worked because the movie was delivered on time huh? and under budget. But the problem getting into post-production was you didn't. there wasn't a lot of time to edit the movie. Mm-hmm. And James Horner had three weeks to compose a score for this movie. Oh, my god! Which is not a lot of time. No. You need as much time as possible in post-production to get a film score. And three weeks is not a lot. Because usually a film score is the last thing you do after editing yeah. and, and getting all that together. And to just say, like, oh, by the way, James, you've only got three weeks. <laughs> Kudos to him, though. For three weeks and getting the score that he got. This score is amazing. Sometimes, though, that helps, right? When they're rushed, it's like, well, time to work those creative juices. Well, yeah, when when you don't have a lot of time to work with, like simplicity is often the best route. And we saw this with uh, Back to the Future and Alan Silvestri's work on that film. He didn't have a lot of time to pop in a score either, but now it's one of the best film scores that's ever been made. So there you go. There's a tidbit for you people out there with scores. Don't ruminate. Just go. Go with your instincts. Uh, we've also got... This is another movie we've got in our uh, oeuvre that uh, that Stan Winston has worked on. <laughs> Stan Winston uh, famously has created some of the best uh, visual effects on ever on screen, and this movie's no exception. His team created uh, a lot of the, the sets that we're, we saw and also the design of the Alien Queen. I would say it's hard to compare these films, the first one and the second one, because they're just so different set-wise. Like, this one is so engrossed with that money. They really just... its Who would have thought seven years later, just the design, it's so sleek. You know, it doesn't feel like a 70s film. No, this doesn't even feel like an 80s film. It's aged so well. I mean, 80s films up to this point where were sleek they were sexy and this isn't this is not that film this is very gritty it's dark it's it's very much like a can-do like type of thing like this it's ordinary people is what it is because i think getting up into this point we had a very audiences had a clear-cut version of what constituted an action hero and i think james cameron definitely has had his part to play in this he wrote rambo he wrote rambo first blood part two and that's this hyper violent Sylvester Stallone is buff as hell action type of hero. So James Cameron played his role in creating this version of the hyper 80s action hero and then totally flipped it on its head with his portrayal and writing of Ellen Ripley. Mm-hmm. So, yes, suck the genre a little bit, but then brings it back. He's, I think James Cameron, you could refer to him for changing the genre so many times. Terminator, Rambo aliens and then coming out with the terminator 2 he's just 
added to that. He just flips, like you said, he flips it on its head all the time. He's really a pioneer. Of yeah. Defining action films to this day that we see. Which is, in seeing like some of his more recent work, like Titanic and Avatar, I think it's very hard like not to look back and say like, you were capable of writing, you know, great <laughs> movies. You're you were right. capable of writing good dialogue. And I think, I think even a casual viewer is able to pick up on sort of this allegory that's persistent in this film to the Vietnam War. Oh yeah, dude, totally. Yeah, the with the uh, even just how the troops all acted with each other, just the dial. It's perfect, so reminiscent of something like that. That's a great point. I didn't even think about that, <laughs> <laughs> but that's brilliant. You're absolutely correct. Well, there's this overconfident and technologically superior fighting force that's grossly underestimating their enemy. You have an opponent that may not seem a- equipped to to fight, but yet they completely dominate everybody. Um, and yet they remain unseen and yet everywhere at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's it's the Marines fighting the Viet Cong is what it is. <laughs> Very much so. And then even Ripley and Burke could be seen as metaphors for the CIA advisors, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. It's like telling them, it's like, well, don't tell anybody we're operating in Cambodia. <laughs> <laughs> but then you also get this failure of leadership with Gorman. And his incompetence that directly leads to the death of so many squad members. Mm-hmm. I mean, people we don't know too well, like it's the anonymous soldier that's being killed and taken off into the jungle. Yeah, it's yeah, because I don't know if they had the backstory on how many like missions he led. I can't remember. I don't know if they said anything about it. I missed it. I got the impression that Gorman was like fresh out of boot. That's what I thought, too. Or like, you know, I thought someone said in that in the movie, it was like their second time doing something. And uh, Ripley was like, oh, OK, this is great because they did. They seem very he seemed so unorganized, like scared. Yes. His face was sweating. He looked ghostly pale like he didn't know what he was doing. Definitely was leaning heavily on a to do the heavy lifting on the leadership. Mm-hmm. And even during the drop is like, how many drops is this for you? Lieutenant? I forget the That's, number. Exactly. Yeah, it's like two. Uh, two. Sim, including this one. Yeah. That's that's why. And the other one was simulated. And yet you look over and you see Hicks and he's and he's sleeping. (laughs) He did not have control of his crew. I mean, and Hudson's even walking up around like during the drop sequence, like for for these Marines. This is just another day at the office for them. Mm -hmm. And him. He was just he was quaking in his boots. And I think it's possible to draw a through line from this film and others from the same time that's kind of contributes to our perspective of the Vietnam war and popular culture. Mm. Cause you had aliens in platoon that came out in the same year and platoon would go on to win best picture. And it's now become like the granddaddy of them all in terms of Vietnam war films. But then three years later, you got films like born on the 4th of July and casualties of war that really kind of kind of ripped open this veneer of the Vietnam war. You know, it was it was not a popular war. It's still not a popular war. And I think we as a society are still trying to reckon with our role and our place in the Vietnam War. Mm. We thought it was it was a war of uh, ideologies. You can't fight a war of ideologies. <laughs> you need good versus evil. You just do in a war like <laughs> we won in World War Two and then Vietnam. We got our asses whooped. <laughs> Very. Yeah. Yeah. But I think they portrayed the Marines really well in this film, and they really embodied that uh, soldier mentality. Because Marines are nuts, man. I mean, they really did. But uh, at time, and this is probably just a civilian in me talking about this. Like, sure. did this film almost seem too ouraj to you at any point? For me, yeah. It, it like uh, Bill Paxson got really annoying. <laughs> I thought his. I don't know. I know a lot of people like him. I couldn't stand him in the movie. I thought he was so annoying and just his whole attitude about him. But there are people like that, though, in the military. They're very hoorah, hoorah. Like, oh, yeah. And you can speak to this more than I possibly can. But, like, is does this seem like an accurate portrayal of military life? Somewhat. Not. I mean, obviously, the there's going to be liberties with it. But, like, is yeah. it about as accurate as Hollywood can get to a certain extent? in a way i mean i'm not a marine i'm army so i don't know i can't speak for like how marines roll you know but for and for some units definitely 
they're that's how they roll they're very like brother in arms and like just super chill laid back with each other very about you know each other because you spend all that time with each other bonding you know that's why with like vasquez when uh they're right outside of the ship you know ripley comes saves him and the dude's obviously dead she wants to like go back and get him i mean that's real you know because you spend all that years with people you don't want to lose them you want to go back and save them you know so i i felt that stuff was real pretty accurate it's not like yeah these aren't like cold-blooded and like the lieutenant that was what was funny to me with that scene where they're getting their asses kicked and the lieutenant's like quaking because that's the joke in the military that lieutenants aren't they're not that intelligent. <laughs> you need to have a good NCO if you want a good officer. And which was my one gripe with the film, sending the first sergeant out there with the guys and leaving the officer just at the ship. I'm like, that wouldn't happen. If you have the commander and then the uh, first sergeant, they're always together. You would never, like at least in the units I've been, yeah, I've never seen a first sergeant just like go out, you know, because he's the top NCO. Like, I mean, yeah, your first sergeant is like the direct liaison between the officers and the enlisted men, right? Yes, yes. So you wouldn't see. I would. I've never seen that where they send him out in the field. He would be. He would be with the commander, relaying the info to the top like squad leaders. I do love Apone though. I think. Oh, Ap- I mean, he was great. He was great. Al Matthews is actually a Vietnam vet. I figured because I'm like this guy's too good. <laughs> Like he's too good. He, he's he's too good. I love him. I just love his cigar chewing. Yep. His hat. I love when he first gets out of stasis and he goes, "Day in the cold is like a day on the farm. Yeah. Every pay, every meal a banquet. Every paycheck a fortune." <laughs> I love that so much. He he was perfect. I I figured. I'm like, this guy is too good. Like you can't. You just know when you see people who actually have been in. You're like, oh yeah, they got it. This has got to be the origin of the trope of, you know, the stogie chomping hard ass sergeant. This has to be. (laughs) It has to be. I know you could probably trace it back to some William Holden movie in the fifties, but to me, like this is where this trope comes from. Mm -hmm. He's just such a badass, And it doesn't get any better than Al Matthews. Like Mm -hmm. I, if this were, you could probably put uh, Lou Gossett jr. In this role, but it's not going to be the same as Al Matthews being Sergeant Apone. No, and he, I, I'll go ahead. He was actually my red shirt, Apone, because I was so bummed when he got you know what? taken. I, I agree. So mad. <laughs> I agree. And that's like the one that's like, no, don't kill Apone. Yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, take the officer. Don't take him. He, he seems like he knows what he's doing. You know, he just had, not mystique, but you just wanted to see him on the screen so much longer than when he was. Because yeah. he knew what he was doing. He was the guy. I, and I do... I don't know like how accurate it is for when Frost makes that comment. It's like I guess the new I guess the new lieutenant's too good would eat the eat with us grunts. Like mm. I don't know, like so the much. closest thing I have to compare that like is life in the Boy Scouts. Like you don't see like the adults like eating the adult leaders eating with, you know, the the kids. It just depends on where what unit some units are like that. Yeah. Where the officers are like, oh, Work too. Yeah, know, they stick they their don't. nose up at hanging out with the grunts or something. But like, I think like it it, it works to a certain extent because you have to build that yeah camaraderie. And I think this is this is something that's explored more in things like Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan. It's like event like you're gonna send these men to their deaths at some point. Mm-hmm. So there is that element of you can't get too close to them, but at the same time you're going into the crucible of combat with them. It just depends on the unit. Combat units, yes, there's a lot less of that because officers are supposed to be apart because they're the dreamers of the whole thing. The enlisted are the folks that do uh, run the plans of the officers. But, you know, in a BSB or more of like a pogue unit where you're like on the homeland or running like a hospital or something, absolutely. The like doctors or someone is going to be an officer. So you don't really see like the mixture as much. But, uh, oh, yeah. Because you're going to be out there with blood, sweat, tears, man. At the end of the day, it's just a rank. I wish we had more time with this unit you know, as a full unit together. Yeah. Like, And it was it was sad to see them all, you know, um, you know, get fragged the way they did. But, I mean, which Marine did you most, like, identify with? Oh. Like, which is the one that's like, man, I would, like, love to have a beer with you. Or, like, I see myself, like, in, in this unit. Um, oh, what's his name? The guy at the end. That survives. Not the lieutenant, but the... Um, Hicks. Hicks. Yes, Hicks was cool. I liked Hicks. I thought he was great. 
especially like uh, that one scene with Ripley where Hicks has to make the call, you know, going and she's like, I think we should nuke it. You know, I was like, all right, this is up to this guy. You know, he's a corporal. He's literally nothing in the military, but he has to take control. And I thought I did a damn good job, you know, owning that leadership. And I loved it. I was like, man, I'd love to pick this guy's brain if he was a real person, you know, or have at least that person on my squad, you know, because that's a that's a go to, especially for being so young and no experience. Yeah, that's a leader. I always love Hudson in this movie. Hudson like Hudson is sarcastic <laughs> doesn't want to be there but at the end when uh the, all the aliens are dropping down from the ceiling in the control room he steps up and he goes down hard he goes out swinging and I mm-hmm. like there's there's a lot of sadness when he's taken but you don't that there's a lot of pride too because you know he went down hard mm-hmm. and I always appreciate that in movies like this where they don't just randomly kill off characters like this. There is that, ex- yeah. There is that to a certain extent, but every single character goes out swinging. That's what I love. They do, they do, except the uh, except the corporate shill. Oh god, his death. <laughs> I wish though we could have seen his death on screen. Like, watch. I was hoping that we got something like from the first one with the the little mouth just jabs him right in the forehead. That was my gripe with this film. Well, I what, wish we could have seen something like that. What makes Burke's betrayal like so hard is the entire film he's set up to be Ripley's ally. And that perception shifts a little bit once we figure out that it was actually Burke that sent the colonists out to look at the, the spacecraft. It eventually led to the deaths of 150 people. And then what makes it worse, what finally puts the nail in the coffin is letting the facehuggers out to kill basically kill ripley and newt a little child and then kill the other marines yeah it's like you were willing to barbecue all these people just so you could bring an alien back to the company and i love ripley's line like just that final dagger towards him like you don't see them screwing each other over for a percentage yes I agree with that. <laughs> I didn't. My gripe, though, with Burke was because um, with Alien, you could chalk it up to Ash. Like his betrayal is just programming, right? He's a robot. But with Burke, it's like he's a human, you know? Is he really that much of a corporate shill that he's just going to barbecue, as you say, everyone? But at the same token, it made me wonder, just like in the first one, how was Ash and Burke going to, like, what was their plan? Uncontaining, you know, like let's say the face. Well, they're gonna freeze them, put them in stasis. Gonna... Okay, and then yeah. not not freeze them when they get back. Like uh-huh. Ripley was saying, like he could sabotage whatever units he wanted to. Yeah, and then program when he was released and not release new in Ripley. And I mean, this is where this movie is the emergence of Wayland Yutani as sort of <laughs> the bastards of the Alien series. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't believe Burke had that capacity. He he's, didn't seem that intelligent. Well, he was he's human, so he has no excuse for his bad behavior. Yeah. Whereas Ash, he's a victim of his programming. Yes. So I can, co- you know, you can like brush off that Ash is a villain, but Burke was the villain, essentially. Him and the corporation again. Well, even right from the beginning, the, the company set out to be this bad boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Like they blame Ripley for what happened on an Nostromo. Which is so stupid. Like, it's not her, like, and even they admit, like, well, yeah, the data recorder corroborates some of your accounts, but, like, the, but it's, the ship is gone. We lost all that money. It's like, aren't you glad, like, that I, you know, prevented everybody on Earth from dying? Like, aren't you glad that I'm home safe? Right. They, they were all about the numbers in the end. They didn't care. And then even Burke and his stupid corporate legalese, like, we have a substantial dollar amount tied to this installation. It's like, oh, my God, you're speaking yuppie language. It's like, don't you have insurance on the ship or something, you know, that you can write off? Got to say, I do love his suits, though. Yeah. Like, I love that collar. I wish that would become something here as we're getting on in the 21st century. I do love Burke's fashion, at least in the beginning part of it. And then... When they're on LV-426, he basically, he looks like a CIA contractor, is mm-hmm. what it looks like. <laughs> he does. He did rock some good clothes, much so. But his death was satisfying. It's just one of those, yes! It's one of those rare deaths where you cheer it on. You're mm-hmm. glad it happens. Mm-hmm. There's actually a, a deleted scene where Ripley actually finds 
uh, Burke's cocoon body oh. when she's going to look for Newt. And then he he's asking her, like, help me or kill me or something. But then she just keeps walking. Oh. But they cut it out of the film. Because yeah. I think, like, nah, like we got it. It's implied that he's, you know, dead. So you don't need that scene. I can see why they cut that out. And it kind of takes away from Ripley's um, empathy and compassion. Because mm-hmm. you feel like even though he sold him out, she still would have saved him. or You know, she, she just had that great moral compass in the end. So her just walking by him would kind of not do her character totally wrong, but you know, it would, it would put a little shade. (laughs) I think she does. She does take over out of this sense of compassion and frustration at the incompetence. And in the atmospheric processing station, she sees the camera feeds go out and she sees Gorman basically doing nothing. And then when she starts up the APC and the music kicks in, it's like the entire tone of the movie shifts. Because it's no longer about the Marines going in and kicking ass. It's now just, it's now a fight for survival. Yes, it is. And her portrayal, I, I have to credit Sigourney Weaver's acting. Like um, when she sees the the um, the chestburster, like she portrays PTSD so well. You just see that the look of horror on her face like, oh my God, not again. Not again. Not again. <laughs> like it's Kane all over again. And then all the aliens just emerge from the wall. It's it's an incredible bit of suspenseful filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Like, And you don't know what is in that atmospheric processing station. They're going down into the into the into the sub levels and the camera feeds are just <laughs> it's a great way of kind of disconnecting from everything. You see it secondhand. And this detachment of like, I can't do anything. Yeah. Until Ripley just says like, screw you. I'm going. Right. And she doesn't care. I love that that she didn't care at all about what the uh, the lieutenant was saying. She's like, screw you. I'm going to save him. You know, I'm not hiding out. And that's kind of where I felt the contractor vibe from her. Like how you're saying the CIA offered it. Because it, it did feel very much. Because that's how contractors are. They're like, I'm going to do whatever. I, I don't care. I'm not loyal to you. F off. <laughs> best li- best line though that Ripley has is when they're they're full on going to destroy the station, and Burke says the whole you know dollar amount thing, and she goes, "They can bill me." <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> I love that too. Uh, so she kicks so much ass in this film. There's a lot of feminine masculinity with Ripley. She doesn't do anything out of this sort of like, I'm going to be the hero and I'm going to save the day type of thing. She doesn't do any of that. It's very much of she sees the situation she's in. She sees the failures of other people and she just says, screw it. I'm taking over. I know what to do. It is very much instinct driven, but it also comes from a place of compassion and caring. Because she's also trying to protect Newt from the horrors that... uh, we can only imagine what this little girl has witnessed over the last, what, three weeks or so that she's been alone in this station. Oh my God. She, and even in when she sees on the camera that they're in the, the processing station, she tells her, like, go sit over there. Get away from this. You don't need to see this. It's, it's that moral compass. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> to write off Burke as well. Like, I thought you were on our side and you're not. Well, now you're just an enemy. I don't care who gets you. You see a lot of, you see the moral contrast definitely play out. I mean, we would have thought Burke would have, you know, been helpful, but he locks him in the control room to be, to be skewered. Yeah, I know. He's such a dick. <laughs> he just, and, and then he locks them out of the room when he, when, you know, crap hits the fan, he goes and closes the door on him because he's like, oh, screw these people. I'm going to get my own. I'm going to survive, which ends up being his own turmoil. But, but you're oddly, absolutely right. But oddly enough, like even Burke's death is off screen. There's and it's the same thing that kind of <laughs> we saw in the first film. This film isn't really that gruesome or gory. A lot of the deaths occur off off screen. Really, the 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 goriest death we get is probably well, maybe not even Gorman. We get uh, the the colonist we see as victim of the chestburster. Oh yeah, and then we see the pilot Pharaoh. Like the bunch of blood starts coming out of her head when the alien gets her from behind. Yeah, yeah, that's true. No, I do love that shot of all the blood spurting on the screen and poor Pharaoh's. Like, I can't do anything <laughs> about this. Right. 
<laughs> I know I didn't care for the uh, androids that, like getting ripped in half. I felt like the android getting ripped in half was just because uh, that felt tropey to me because you saw, you know, Ash, his head come off in the white. And it's a beautiful spectacle. It's so visually just appealing, you know, the little organs and everything. But I was like, ah, you're just doing this because it was. It felt like they were just doing it because it was in the first film. I don't, and it looked cool. I don't think so. I certainly like the dynamic between Ripley and Bishop. Because oh, yeah. obviously she's she has a reason to be distrustful of androids. Mm-hmm. And Bishop, to his credit, is basically doing everything he can to please Ripley. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other Marines, the other people, they may as well be indifferent to Bishop. He's just there to help him out. He, They know he's not going to hurt them. He's just there to help. But Ripley's just like, you stay away from me. Yeah. But Bishop was such a—he was the OG. He yeah. really like kept this mission going. He he got the ship, the antenna. I mean, everything. He was just always there at the right time. I don't know if you saw this, but Vasquez when he's about to go into that like that rat pipe, mm-hmm. Vasquez hands him a gun. Yeah, and he just looks at this like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? Mm-hmm. It just gives it back to him or mm-hmm. to her. <laughs> like, yeah, what is he gonna do with this? Because <laughs> he's super strong, and I feel like he was just so intelligent, he would have gotten away anyways. He just never feared. And I love with Bishop where. Um, like he volunteers to go out and he's like, you know, it's not something that I want to do either. Even though I'm an android, you know, I still don't want to die. Well, don't forget, he prefers the term artificial person. And I really like that because they fleshed out his, you know, him being an android and actually having feelings and emotions. And there's one really brief cool. moment in the movie where Bishop is analyzing. I think he's uh, dissecting one of the facehuggers. Mm-hmm. And there's this brief twinge of you don't know if he's going to turn like ash did yeah i do love that moment yeah it, it definitely had those vibes where you're like oh crap is he gonna be obsessed with them but no he pulled through <laughs> no he's more on the side of humans because mm-hmm. of his programming <laughs> and he ends up saving newt at the end even yeah. though he was ripped in half <laughs> that is probably the best effect in the film mm-hmm. is you know having bishop being pulled up and skewered by the alien queen and then ripped apart like this this is a movie that's full of great effects but to me that's the one that stands out the most it is very iconic and once again it also serves as um ripley then can satisfy fulfill her destiny you know she gets to fight the queen on her own because with bishop he's super strong very intelligent you know with him they could have together bested i feel the queen very easily but with Ripley having to do it on her own, getting in the machine and fighting the queen at the end, um, you know, it just satisfies. She could do it on her own. She don't need no man's help. And she got it, you know. It's this is my surrogate daughter. Um, but I think another key theme to this film, and I think this is something that kind of has gotten lost over the years because the director's cut wasn't immediately available. Is there's this very strong theme of motherhood. You have a very twisted, deranged sense of motherhood from the alien side of things. But then you also get this strong sense of maternal instincts and love and compassion from Ripley. And this is where I think the director's cut is something that should be more readily available. Because I truly believe it's the definitive cut. Um, Because there is a scene early on in the film where Burke um, has a dossier on Ripley's daughter. And we didn't know she had a daughter in the first film. But we also learned that after being gone for 57 years, like her daughter grew up. And then unfortunately she passed away before the movie started. And so you get this kind of this lost opportunity for Ripley to kind of close that loop. See her daughter say, I'm sorry, I missed the last 56 birthdays. <laughs> Pulling interstellar. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then because cutting out that scene then forces you to cut out other scenes in the film where Ripley goes and naps with Newt and checks on her. And then that payoff at the end where the alien queen is blasted out in the space and Newt hugs Ripley, accepting her as her new mother. Like that payoff now is gone. Hmm. And that's why I wish like that film that those scenes could have stayed in there. Because I, I really, I love the theme of motherhood. Because it's not something you'd expect from a sci-fi blockbuster like this. 
you certainly get the Vietnam allegory right away. But to bring in Ripley's softer, more compassionate side brings a lot of humanity to this film that we don't often see. I I kind of, though, got it, though, without her, um, without knowing that she had a kid. You know, I didn't need to know that she had a kid, but because uh, I always thought Ripley was just like single or she didn't have anyone back there because, you know, I, they don't provide in this, you know, how long the space travel, how long the missions are, et cetera. So I could only imagine how difficult it would be to have a family, especially if you're gone for months and years at a time. But with uh, Newt, while it was annoying <laughs> at times, um, I definitely got the feel of the motherhood, you know, even if they wrote it as her being single, no family ties or whatever, Newt being her child, a you know, surrogate child. I kind of got that, her being the caregiver. So that was kind of cool. But that would have helped add yeah. a little bit more hoopska to it. <laughs> you also get this hint of romance between Hicks and Ripley. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. When he's showing her how to operate the weapon. Yeah. That's what I thought they were going to go for a little bit more lean into, but I'm glad at the same time they didn't because that's not what this movie's about. And so it was no, just No, it's nice not. It's, but it is nice to see those softer glimpses into Ripley's character as well as Hicks because we don't know his name is Dwayne until he tells her. Yeah. Yeah. Like these are all just, these are all just faceless Marines up into a point and when they start dying. And then Hicks is able to really inject a lot of humanity into this film and into the Marine culture. Because he's the last Marine. Yeah. Gorman's gone. Vasquez is gone. Hudson's gone. Apone's dead. Dwayne is the last one. We have to know Dwayne on some fundamental level. We can't just chalk him up as another Marine that's just going to die. No. But I did enjoy how with Gorman he sacrificed himself like he got his you know at the end despite Gorman got his redemption I will give him that he was I mean I mean ideal like officers go through boot just like everyone else right yeah and I don't know for him to just be that sniveling type of I don't know rear echelon type of officer who doesn't really know what to do like just seems like a bit of a disservice to the Marines in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. But then yeah, he redeems himself. He tries to go back for Vasquez and tries to save her, but it's And then in a way. Goes out hard. They go out hard with the grenade. <laughs> Cause yeah, Vasquez. I will say though, the one thing that didn't continuity sake is the acid. The acid blood. Because in the first film they really played up the acid blood, like going through like three levels. This one you know, it got on the arm a little bit, and then it was like, oh, you know, they just brushed it off on the armor, took it off. Because the way they set up the blood in the first film, I would have felt like if any of the alien's blood got on, like, uh, Vasquez's leg, it would have chopped it off, you know, because the way it went through the hole so quick. So I do think the continuity with that, you know, they, they had to change it for precedent's sake, but. Well, it, got, it did get on her ankle and she couldn't move. Yeah. I mean, it's still there. It's just not as present as it was in the first film. I mean, it, no, it didn't go through three halls. <laughs> I mean, we saw Drake get sprayed with acid and, you know, his face was melting. Uh, Hudson got acid on him. Hicks did. So, I mean, you still see its destructiveness. Oh, yeah. That was just my minor gripe. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I mean, <laughs> that's okay to have a minor gripe. <laughs> Which is actually good because you know how good the film is if the minor gripe is, ah, oh, the acid just isn't as potent as the first one. So you know you got a good film, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, would, uh, would you have liked to see more scenes that kind of really show what life is like in this colony before it all went to hell? Yeah. I think that would have been interesting. I think that is a lacking in this uh, whole series that you'd never really get to see what life is like in space. It always just seems like them trying to beat the aliens. So I would have I would have appreciated that a little bit more. There's a brief scene in the in the director's cut, but for the oh. majority like a lot of it was left out in the theatrical cut. I mean, you just have the marines show up and it's all, you know, gone to hell. Yeah. They're all missing, they're all dead. It's just yeah, there's gripes about the the uh, the company. Of course, you see a, a little kid riding around on a big wheel that's got the Whalen Utani logo on it. <laughs> but it's I would have liked to uh, like at least have something 
more like a prologue that really kind of shows what daily life is like in this colony. Yeah. Because, I mean, their goal is to make the planet habitable, but there's like, really, that's all you're doing? Mm-hmm. Like, you've got atmospheric processors. Are you mining for natural resources? Like, because you really don't need 150 people if all you're doing is just having atmospheric processors there, but what do I know? <laughs> Colonizing planets isn't in my job description. No, no. <laughs> but it would have been nice to have a little bit more insight into it, which, it, yeah, in my opinion, is the one downfall of this whole thing. But that's all right. <laughs> no movie is perfect. No. This did get pretty close, though. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, anything else we want to talk about before we move into the, the fun parts? I will just praise the uh, usage of the aliens in this film. Despite, like in the first one, they had to work with a guy in a suit. Um, they had Cameron used the scenes. I don't know if he used miniatures or puppets, but the scene where, um, you know, the final standoff where it shows the aliens creeping up on them. Yeah. And, uh, like the grates and everything. That was really well done with the fire and the lights and everything. I don't know how he did it. I think those were all like stuntmen in suits. Great. It it looked way better, I would say, than um, the guy in the costume. <laughs> in spite of the title, yeah, you do see multiple aliens on screen, but it's not until they're creeping up on the control room mm-hmm. and you hear like the motion tracker going off and you get that, that stinger that shows them all in the ceiling. I think that's... That's just such brilliant filmmaking. It looks so good. And then with the hands catching the elevator door, I mean, he he really used the aliens to its best. The only one that didn't age as well for me was the queen. It definitely looked puppet. It looked just very unstable. She did. But, I mean, you know, that's okay. It's the 80s, and they're trying to pull off this giant creature, right? It, It still looked cool with the mouth and the head and everything. I mean, looked wonderful. Yeah, it doesn't jam-pack the screen with aliens like I think later films in the series do. But especially in the in the firefight in the atmospheric processing center, like, yeah, they're, they're expend all ordinance, expend all ordinance, but you don't see a lot of, of them, like, aliens on screen. Like, you see them, like, being shot up and exploding and all that. But it's a great example of, you know, not tilting your hand too much. And especially the scenes where they're talking, they're setting up the remote uh, sentry guns. You just see the ammo counters going down, and you hear the aliens being killed, but you don't see any of it. I think that's just brilliant. It's like they're wall, they're wall, wall in there, man. It's like, yeah, they are. That's what makes it so freaking terrifying. Absolutely, and you don't get bored of them. You know, they don't show like they don't you because sometimes with creatures, if they reveal them too much, then they just kind of get boring. They lose their mysticism and their fear factor. But with this. You know, he didn't he didn't overplay his hand. Well, this is why I think the the addition of the motion tracker is such a brilliant motif because you hear it. That sound effect is amazing. Like they're coming out of the walls. (laughs) I got movement behind us, man. I'm telling you, there's something in here and it ain't us. <laughs> right. And even Ripley's like, give me that thing. What? This sure is why not. I wish we had like a, a sound machine so we could just insert a lot of like Hudson's lines. <laughs> yes. Yes. Game over, man. Game <laughs> over. I'm not going out there. <laughs> why don't you put her in charge, man? Yeah, bro. That was a pretty good line. <laughs> uh great film. Great film. Very razzle dazzle. Uh very action packed. You know, for a James Cameron film, but he still found a way to make it uh, humanized. Yeah, you know? which that's why he's a damn good director. Well, this is why I think this is something that he's kind of lost a bit in a lot of his more recent films, at least the ones within recent memory. Like Ripley feels very much relatable on so many levels. Even the the Marines that get killed, like we identify so hard with them. And then even looking back at Terminator, like there's qualities in Kyle Reese that we identify with. And there's qualities in Sarah Connor that we identify with. And then Terminator 2 Sarah Connor is just like full on robot murdering badass. Right. Murder machine. Yeah. We can get behind Terminator 2 Sarah Connor. We love Terminator 2 Sarah Connor. We love Aliens Ripley. Somewhere between there and Titanic kind of just fell away i think all the divorces started getting to him (laughs) he got really sour he got divorced a lot (laughs) and i think he took it out on the on the women who divorced him 
<laughs> the characters. He yeah. stopped writing good female characters after getting divorced four times. <laughs> I've written enough. <laughs> it's We're time. sorry, Linda Hamilton. It's not your fault. It's that James Cameron's a jerk. Oh, God. Did you have any lens flares? You know, for the most part, I didn't have a problem with this movie, mm. except for the fact when Ripley is about to go off with the Marine Stealth 426. And you just see her look at Jonesy and go, and you, you you little stinker, you're going to stay here. Like, stay here doing what? Is there some sort of, like, cat kennel you can stick him in for a week? Is there, like, a hotel for pets on this space station? You're just going to leave this tabby cat behind and not make arrangements for him to continue living? That's my one lens flare, though. (laughs) And it happens early on enough in the movie where it's like, I don't care. Because by the end of the movie, we forget we we forget oh wait there's a cat at the space station waiting for her <laughs> right well because that cat led to how many people <laughs> people's deaths almost hers <laughs> so i get that yeah i uh, lens flare i didn't really have any either yeah nothing really outside of my little gripe with the blood um and feeling some characters were a little annoying but no nothing really threw me no yeah which is good and we discussed our red shirt toxic fandom Oh, <laughs> okay. Courtesy of IMDb. In the dropship, Corporal Farrow is wearing mirrored sunglasses, but the planet's atmosphere is completely overcast rainstorm. Sunglasses would not only be of no use, they would seriously impair her vision through the cockpit windows and the murk outside. We have a sunglasses pedant. Watch every single movie about that contains any pilots. They're wearing sunglasses. Who cares? <laughs> Any Vietnam movie that's made, the pi- there is a pilot wearing some sort of cool aviator sunglasses. I'm pretty sure Top Gun, every single pilot in Top Gun's wearing sunglasses. <laughs> Pilots wear sunglasses. It looks cool. It does not matter. James Cameron doesn't care about what's outside the cockpit. He cares about how people look on screen and how awesome it is. <laughs> that bothered you, huh? That bothered me. <laughs> it's just like you clearly don't know pilot movie tropes. Uh, they just want a trope-free movie. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's tropes in every movie. Just deal with it. <laughs> no one cares what you have to put on the internet about it. <laughs> and the pilot got hers anyways, right? Right. She died. Yeah. And she's not wearing sunglasses when she dies. So <laughs> so there you go. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, legacy. There's more. <laughs> they didn't stop after this one. They certainly didn't. But this is this, this is a similar situation that we found with the original film, that this film is able, like, it has a legacy yeah. of its own. Certainly within the context of the overall Alien franchise, but this film individually, like this, its legacy and its influence is far reaching. And let's start with the year it came out, 1986. As we mentioned, Platoon came out this year. Also, we had films like Top Gun, Karate Kid Part Two, Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home, wow. Back to School, The Golden Child, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off all came out in this year and were among the highest grossing films. That's incredible. That's a great that's year. A- and that's only like, eight movies that that were fantastic that came out this year so there there isn't like a final box office total but mm-hmm. there is an estimate that came out in 1992 from fox that said the movie made 157 million dollars worldwide which Not is pretty bad. good which is great this aliens was one of the highest grossing films of that year so it was a massive success and dissimilar to what we saw with alien this movie was well received in its time Mm-hmm. critics loved it everybody loved it even contemporary reviews are still positive it has a 97 percent on rotten tomatoes 84 on metacritic as an a on cinema score and nominated for seven academy awards yeah they made up for missing out on the first one I yeah think. It, it actually won for best sound editing and best visual effects two awards rightly deserve it so the visual effects are incredible even to this day um, also nominated for Best Production Design, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, Best Sound Mixing, and in a rarity for the genre, and I think the first film where we've seen this in our catalog that's come up, 
Sigourney Weaver was nominated for Best Actress. Mm. Rightfully so. Oh, yeah. She acted the hell out of this one. Because the first one it felt more subtle. This one, she that PTSD. She was just great. <laughs> but I think she lost to someone. She lost to Marley Matlin oh. in a movie called Children of a Lesser God, which I have not seen. I don't know. No. I don't know how good of a job Marley Matlin did, apparently enough to win an Academy Award. I don't even know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> She's the most prominent deaf actress. Okay. She's been in a lot of things. Um, won a bevy of Saturn Awards. Way, way too many. <laughs> just take them all. <laughs> take them all, basically. When you have a movie like this that comes out, just take all the Saturn Awards. It was the return of the king. Basically. The Saturn that year. <laughs> and... We're going to kind of get into the fun bits of the legacy. So when it was released in, on VHS in 1987, this retailed for 90 freaking dollars oh on VHS. God. Wow. That is a crap load of money. I bet like you basically had to work for two weeks and just eat ramen noodles just so you could afford to buy this movie. And they could only watch it like 20 times because of the rewinding. Right. <laughs> the Eventually that tape's going to wear out and you're going to break it. And then you get to spend $90 again. <laughs> I bet they're pissed off about Blu-ray nowadays. <laughs> Blu-ray certainly made everything easier. <laughs> I spent $90 on that VHS. We're watching it. And now I, now I only spend $10. <laughs> Oh, the passage of time. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, Carrie Henn played Newt. She did not pursue an acting career. She uh, eventually became a teacher. So, oh wow, noble profession. Way to go, Carrie Henn. That is cool. Wow. And more and more sequels obviously released. We had Alien Three, Alien Resurrection. We've got prequel movies coming out now, courtesy oh, yeah. of Ridley Scott. There's now a television series that's in development for release in a couple of years. Um, but as we mentioned, I think this movie more so than um, Alien, is more influential in the pop culture. And I think the addition of the Colonial Marines really kind of amped that up. And for me, especially being the, like, the pop culture nerd I am, <laughs> like you watch Aliens, and then you go play a video game like Halo or Call of Duty Modern Warfare, and the influences are hard, hard entrenched in those video games. Like, they even lift lines of dialogue from this movie into Call of Duty Modern Warfare. I can see why. It feels like a game like that, you know? Yeah, there's that line of uh, Hicks pulling out that shotgun. I like to keep this handy for close encounters. <laughs> That's in Modern Warfare. The, the, the affectation of we are leaving is in Modern Warfare. It's just, it's great. And then you get the character of Sergeant Apone basically recreated in Halo in the form of Sergeant Johnson. Game over, man. Game, Game over. over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, this this film totally impacted. I think yeah. it changed the genre in a way because it made horror action. Yeah. You know, it made it cool because the first one, it just felt like a bunch of random science people like trying to figure out how to beat this, you know, whereas with this, it's like, oh, these guys are trained to kill. Yeah. This movie's routinely listed on the list of best films of all time. They're too oh numerous to list here. And I think, like, this is a movie that, like, my buddies and I, we sit around and watch. And just, like, we we talk the entire time, but we watch it. It's mm -hmm. a great movie. And it's, and I think this is a good time to kind of get into our rating and where mm -hmm. we fall on Aliens. So on our unique scale for the podcast of wooded watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party, uh, I'll I'll lead off sure. this time. And, and and I think I love that this film checks so many boxes. It's a horror film. It's a war film. And most importantly, for our purposes, it's a sci-fi film. And Ellen Ripley is one of the most incredible protagonists uh, that's ever graced the screen, especially this portrayal in this film. And Sigourney Weaver is great. It's impossible to fathom or to contemplate anybody else portraying Ellen Ripley in this way. She understands the character backwards and forwards. She is Ellen Ripley. The visual effects are impressive, even to this day. This does not feel like a film that was made in 1996, uh, 1986. Excuse me. And this has to go down as one of top five films with the best visual effects ever. It has to. And every aspect of this movie is well thought, thought out, mm -hmm. and it's executed even better. And this is the unicorn of sequels. It's a film that 
in many ways surpasses its predecessor, and yet it's able to stand on its own. And you don't see that in sequels ever. And for those reasons, I'm calling this a wood-hosted viewing party. <laughs> Rock on. What about you, Sean? Um, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to echo you. Definitely, this is a wood host, a viewing party. Um, I do think, for me, I liked Alien a little bit more just because it's more stripped back. But I love this, the quotable lines, the action. Very relatable, as you said, with the military. And James Cameron, he's just such an action guru. He's what Michael Bay aspires to be, but will never be. <laughs> so I, I definitely, I, I loved it. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in this was uh, when uh, Ridley's backing away from Mother, and then she sees the egg hatch and then just looks at her like, Girl. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> yeah. That look, that's a that's one of the most brilliant looks I've ever yes. seen of like, you know, we had an agreement. <laughs> yes, yes. I love that. We had an accord. <laughs> and you walk back on that accord. <laughs> now I get to kill all of you. I gonna, love that look. Yes. I'm going to fry everyone. That's that look your mom would give you. Yes. Like after she told you, don't take, you can't have cookies before dinner. <laughs> she just looks at you like, I told you. Even all the aliens backed away. They're like, all right, all right, we we swear. We'll we had an through. agreement. Yes. <laughs> Look what you did, you little jerk. And because of that, absolutely. This is a egg-hatching, face-hugger, blasting, would host a viewing party. Mm. I am down, brother. All right. All right. Hey, it's Sean from Force Fed Sci-Fi. You can probably tell by the audio change this is a different one. Yes, this was not recorded the same day. I ended up... Uh, we have to change the uh, ending of this episode to tell you that we're going to continue on with uh, Alien 3 as opposed to consulting with Major Samantha, which was the initial uh, um, intended ending. Um, so next week we shall be back and we're going to be talking about David Fincher's version of Alien with Alien 3. So... If you enjoyed this episode, please check us out on our social media platforms. We are all over Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, you can check us out on Patreon. And if you enjoy our content, come to our website, www.forcefitsci-fi.com for show notes and more information, just like our side projects um, that I'm plugging with my brother. And then also check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcast, um, TuneIn, Google Podcast, wherever you you find your podcasts and streaming services. Shout out to all of our international listeners. I've recently seen that we've had a tick in the uptick in Australia, Norway, UK, some countries South America like Brazil. And uh, that's pretty rad. So I appreciate you all for checking us out, giving us a listen. And we shall be back next week. So have a happy holidays to you all if you celebrate them. Uh, do something good for yourself. Take care of yourself. This is Sean from Force Fed Sci-Fi. We'll see you next time. Thanks.